0: Welcome to the Jesus Church Podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence, to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey.
1: What an honor it is to worship as a family all together, both 9 and 11 AM gatherings, right? Yes. It is such a gift to be in the room at the same time. It's giving me that nostalgic feeling in elementary school where you and your best friend were in different classes but it was assembly day, so you got to sit next to each other all day, right? Yeah. But maybe you're not feeling that way. Maybe you're feeling a little bit more like your mom dragged you to a family reunion and you're looking across the way like, I've never seen these people in my life. Who are these people that I say I go to church with? Well, either way, we want you to come to Picnic in the park this afternoon. Get some, get some time to know people that you don't yet know. We'd love to see you there. But we are gonna be continuing on in our series called Undivided, where we unpack the reality that we are created for wholehearted and undivided worship. As we encounter his presence, we are formed into his image and reflect his creative power in the world. You've heard us reference this quote a bit, but it helps to frame up the structure of our series. John Wimber notes that if you wanna see scripture come off the page and come alive in your own life, you need a theology, a model, and a practice. And so those three sections are sitting, uh, helping us to frame this series. We're sitting squarely in the model section, allowing different examples of stories in scripture to provide a framework on how to grow in our undivided worship. And so for this week's teaching, we are gonna be taking a look at one of the most powerful and prophetic songs in the Old Testament, sometimes referred to as the Song of the Sea, the Song of Miriam, or the Song of Miriam and Moses. And this song of worship is significant not just because of who sings it or why it's sung, but because of how it can draw us deeper into the heart of God. And so those are the movements that we're gonna be tackling this morning. First, exploring who Miriam is. Next, exploring the nature of her song. And finally, how her example and model can move us deeper into God's heart. Because friends, I don't want you to miss this. This is why we are here. This model, our model of worship in the song of Miriam that we're gonna explore. It drives us deeper into the heart of God, inviting us to lay hold of who God is, what he has done, in order that we might be able to move forward into what he has for us. So would you stand with me? I'm gonna invite my friend Mackenzie up to the stage. I'm looking for her, there she is. And she is gonna read God's word for us. If you need a Bible, we've got men and women who would love to pass that out to you. Just put up your hands. uh, But it's also gonna be on the screen. It's a rather lengthy text, so hang in there. It's a beautiful piece of scripture,
0: Mackenzie, take it away. Thanks Molly. We're gonna be reading in Exodus 15, starting in verse one. It says, then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for He is highly exalted. Both horse and driver He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise Him. My Father's God and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger, and it consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in wonders, work, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretched your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people that you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them in your, to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified, and the leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By your power of your arm, they they will be as still as stone. Until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you brought pass by, You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, Lord, you have made your dwelling. The sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground." Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both the horse and the driver he has hurled into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks
1: be to God. Let me pray for you. Yeah, clap for me, I love it. (laughs) Yes, Jesus, we thank you so much for your word that it is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we ask that you would create space in our heart, in our mind, in our whole self to receive the word of God as truth this morning, that it would transform the way that we show up to life with you and with one another and that you would teach us. So God, would you tune us and make us sensitive to your voice, to your leading this morning and all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. All right, so the first movement we're gonna explore this morning is who is Miriam? Well, the unfortunate reality is that the Bible doesn't provide a ton of information about Miriam, but the world of ancient Jewish literature gives us a window into who this incredible woman is, so we're gonna be exploring a little bit of both. And the literature not only points to his her character, but it also clarifies her significance as a prophet and a leader. So Miriam is called the prophet Miriam like we just read in Exodus 15:20. She's also called a visionary in Numbers 12. And in some of the ancient Jewish literature, they compare her to Daniel as one who receives revelation from God, a peek behind the supernatural curtain to provide prophetic insight as to who God is and what he has for his people. Jewish rabbis even speak to the most significant of her prophecies where she prophesied of a boy who will rescue and deliver his people. Under the oppression of Egypt, but by the hand of Yahweh, who later came to be Moses. So a quick word on the prophets in the Old Testament. Old Testament prophets were primarily used to call God's people back into covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. They were there to remind his people of who he is, what he's done, and why it is that they should trust him. That was 95% of their work in the Old Testament. The other 5% was used just as we saw in Miriam's prophecy to hear God's voice on behalf of a person or group of people, often giving direction in the way they should go as God directs through his revelation or his raz in Hebrew, where the space between heaven and earth is thin and God shares his heart and his direction through a person. And this Old Testament understanding of prophecy informs our understanding of prophecy today. So in the Old Testament, God chose specific people as prophets for his purposes. But in the new covenant, the covenant that we are all under, all of God's people, young, old, male, female, they have the spirit of God within them and can be used by God for prophetic purposes. Each one of us can hear God's voice and heart for a person or a group of people. So I know that you hear the language of prophetic ministry here a lot at A Jesus Church. That is what we mean, to hear God's voice and heart for a person or group of people. But in the Old Testament, God chose specific people, so it's significant to note that in this moment, Miriam is being called a prophet. Not just anybody got to be used by God in this way, and yet God chooses a woman, highly unlikely, to carry forth the vision that he has for these people, as well as calling his people back into covenant faithfulness through her worship. So it's clear, Miriam is a prophet, not only because the scriptures identify her as so, but because her song of worship is powerfully prophetic in nature, she invites invites his people to sing to the God who delivers, who protects, who provides, calling them to sing to who he is, what he's done, what he will do, and why he's worthy of worship, which leads us to our next point. She is also a worship leader. A few clues in the text point to this reality. First, she's got a timbrel in her hand, which is a drum. She's a drummer. Female drummer, we love it. And second, uh, the woman follow her as she leads them, as the text explains that she sings to them. Both from grammar and genre, we see most Hebrew scholars credit the authorship of this song to Miriam, actually, because it says that Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord, a song that they had already learned, but Miriam sang this song to them, signaling that she led a song that came from her heart as an offering to Yahweh. The Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, even furthers this point and translates verse 21 as Miriam led them in her song. A final note on this passage. It might seem peculiar that only an excerpt of the song is included in the scriptures as Miriam sings it, whereas the whole version is included in Moses and the Israelites singing but in classic Hebrew fashion, this excerpt is just of reference to say she sang the entire song. So that's why it's repeated again, but not in full length, because that would be too much work, right? So we've established, who is Miriam? She is a prophet, and she is a worship leader. But what is the nature of her song? Miriam recounts immediately that the very thing that God has just done is deliver, provide victory, protection, and shepherding to his people. She calls them to remember, this is who God is. This is what God has done. But in order to understand the power of this song, I think it would be helpful to actually take a look at the circumstances that gave birth to this song in the first place. So we're gonna rapid fire through Exodus 1 through 15. I promise I won't take up too much of your time, but it is significant. It is important to understanding the nature of her song. So at the end of Genesis, we see a small nation called Israel living in Egypt. And as Israel began to grow in number, they found themselves under new leadership, under a new pharaoh. And this pharaoh began to feel threatened by the growing number of Israelites and decided that the best way to control them was to enslave them in order, and then order a killing of all firstborn Hebrew boys. He works them to the bones as slaves. We even see in the text that he has them use mortar and brick. This mortar and brick language is actually a literary signal back to the story of the Tower of Babel or Babylon, which was a violent and prideful enemy nation who opposed God. In other words, Pharaoh is asking the Israelites to participate in building a violent and enemy nation who opposes God as slaves, where conditions get so brutal for the Israelites that they can no longer stand it. They're asked to keep up with the same amount of workload, but they're no longer being provided with the materials that they need to be successful, giving the hard work even becoming more brutal. And in in the midst of this, we see God promise that he will deliver his people from the hand of Pharaoh to set his people free. And he does so by rescuing one of those Hebrew boys who was supposed to be killed, Moses. And the very thing that Pharaoh ends up ordering becomes the root of his own downfall an epic story. The story goes on. A a lot of really important stuff happens, particularly with Moses as he's shaped into a leader. We don't have time to get into all of that. But as Moses is being raised by God as a leader, who will take God's people out of Egypt, Yahweh demonstrates his almighty power against the Pharaoh through a series of plagues to demonstrate that he is more powerful than the Egyptian gods and explains that now he will kill all firstborn males Then he promises to pass over his people's houses of those who follow his instruction to put lamb's blood over the doorpost, leaving the Egyptian families mourning their firstborn children in a wake of devastation. It is then that we see Pharaoh finally recognize the power of Yahweh just for a moment in order to let the people of Israel go where they take off for the desert. But of course, Pharaoh has a change of heart and he gathers his army to go after the Israelites. But meanwhile, as the Israelites are heading for the desert, finally free from the enslavement that they've been in for so long, all of a sudden they begin to lose perspective of who God is. They start to complain and long for the comfort and familiarity of enslavement, not because it was inherently better, but because it was familiar. Maybe you felt this way before. The vulnerability of a new situation, even if it's supposed to be better than the reality God's delivered you from, causes a longing for the old and familiar despite how unhealthy it was. This is how the Israelites felt. They began to complain that being out in the desert was far worse than when they were slaves in Egypt, losing all sight of who God is and what he's capable of. I bring that up to say, this is the state of of where these people were at. They were in desperate need of a leader who would call them into who God is and what he's done for them, a reminder in a season of desperation where they think that enslavement is far better than freedom. As the story progresses, Israel sees their enemies on the horizon coming for them, Pharaoh and his army, much more powerful than them, and they see the Red Sea in front of them. There is no way out independent of the power of God, and God... Through Moses says these powerful words, words we see later in Miriam's song. In Exodus 14, he says, Stand by, wait, and see the salvation of Yahweh. He will fight for you. A God who not only protects them, but is a God who is going to take them where they themselves cannot go. A deliverer, the one who brings salvation. Enemy nation behind them, huge sea in front of them, absolutely nowhere to go. And God in his power splits the sea in such a way that the Israelites just get to walk on through on dry ground. And as the enemies are coming behind them in chariots far more powerful with weapons and tools being able to destroy them, seeming so much more mighty and so much more powerful, they get swallowed up by the sea and drown on impact. I don't know what parts of your story might look like this, hard pressed on every side, no pathway for salvation or deliverance in sight, but God in his mercy makes a way where there is no way. Maybe it was the loss of a job, a shift in relationship status, chronic pain, leaving you with more questions than answers, enemy nation behind you, huge sea in front of you. Stand by, wait, and see, the salvation of Yahweh, he will fight for you. This was the nature of Miriam's song, a song not only to ascribe honor, blessing, and give adoration to the one who delivers, but serves as a reminder that enslavement is not the story, that freedom, victory, belongs to the Lord. When we find ourselves standing in the gap between our need and God's provision of that need, Miriam's model invites us to lay a hold of who God is, what he's done in order that we might be able to move forward in what he has for us. Miriam's song ends by calling his people to see the prophetic promises of God in the future. The establishment of the city of Jerusalem as the location of the temple, God's dwelling place, and sanctuary which we get to see later on in the biblical narrative. The end of this song, it gives us a window into the prophetic intentions of God in the future. Miriam's song is not just a call to reflect on and celebrate what God has done in the past, or even an invitation into deeper trust in the present, though both of these things are true. It's also an opportunity to let God's character be the confidence you carry into your future. In other words, a promise. I will be with you. I will fight for you. This is the nature of her song to allow who God is and what he's done to shape how we see and understand the past, stay rooted in the present, and look forward to what he will do. But we're here today not just to learn of the prophetic giftings of Miriam or even marvel at how beautiful her song is, but instead to learn from her model of worship in order that it might drive us deeper into the heart of God, increasing our proximity, our trust, and intimacy with this living God that she sings of, and allowing his presence to shape our hearts as ones that are undivided in nature. Because we can be moved by something without being changed by something. What do I mean by this? When I was pregnant, I had been told that listening to and watching a lot of positive birth stories would help mentally prepare me for my own. And I thought, why not, let's just do it. So I did just that. And there were times, friends, where I was just sitting on the couch weeping at watching complete strangers that I have not met nor will I ever meet bring their child into the world. I was so moved by some of these beautiful birth stories. And if you're pregnant out there and you want me to send you a few, I've got some good ones on deck. They will wreck you in the best way. I was there, I was being moved by someone else's story. But it wasn't until I gave birth to my own son, experiencing every contraction and every moment myself that I understood its power. It changed me. I was the same woman before and after watching those birth stories. They moved me, absolutely, but they did not change me. But I came out of that hospital a different woman than the one that I walked into. It's the same with God in his presence. You can hear all about other people's relationship with God formed in the secret place. Read every book in the world on formation and prayer, listen to every sermon and podcast be completely moved by other people's experience of God and never be changed. We need to experience and meet with God in his presence ourselves. That's when we're gonna see our hearts become undivided like Miriam's because we can be moved by something without being changed by something. The model, the model that Miriam examples, it invites us not just to be moved by an emotional experience, but to be changed in the presence of God through exaltation and praise. Stephanie Gretzinger, she's one of my favorite worship leaders of all times, second to Jordan Schott, of course, <laughs> says this, be careful to notice the difference between high energy and high praise. Friends, I'm going to let you in on a little secret, okay? My first job in ministry was actually in charge of youth worship. You can laugh, it's okay. Our church was way smaller than this one and I had taken voice lessons and taught guitar here and there. So in my mind, I was totally and completely qualified. But let me tell you something about that first ministry opportunity. I had no business leading worship and it wasn't just that my voice was like a six out of 10 on a really good day. It's that if you were to ask me why I loved him, I wouldn't have had an answer for you. I was 16 and I had hardly been following Jesus for four seconds. The maturity and the intimacy hadn't been built in this secret place, so it wouldn't have mattered if I sounded like Jordan Chet. The crown shouldn't have been anywhere near my head because worship belongs to the Lord. It is for him, it is to him, and this is the invitation in the song of Miriam. Sing to the Lord, he is highly exalted. Her model is simple, but it is deeply profound. This is the God I love. This is who he is, what he's done, why he's worthy of worship. And because of this, this is who I know he will be and what he will do. Do you feel the shift in the room when all of a sudden we start to worship in such a way that is complete exaltation and praise to our God? Holy, holy, holy holy. I know that we feel it in the room. There's something that shifts. God's presence is delighted to inhabit the praises of his people because our song, our worship, our adoration is completely unto the Lord. And I don't want you to hear me say that I'm critiquing some of the other worship songs that uh, call us deeper and talk a little bit more about what's going on underneath the surface because I think those are beautiful songs and they are often on ramps into prayer, into times with the Lord, but there is something different about a song that is 100% unto the Lord. Holy, 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 worthy. I know you feel it in the room when we begin to sing completely undivided in worship. And the spirit falls and he is delighted to be with his people. To know our God in such a way that our only response is to say, God, you are holy. God, you are worthy. There is none like you. An opportunity to tell him why you love him. And if friends, you've ever felt that inevitable numbness that can sometimes accompany worship, like maybe you walk in here and you're like, I got nothing. My invitation, and I say this having walked through it myself and walk through it all of the time, is to check in on your pathways for satisfaction. So we're gonna get a little practical here. Michael Culliano speaks of this when he says that problems in our worship arise as a, as a satisfaction issue. He is the water and the well. We always want the water, but he is the only place that you can get it. In other words, who is satisfying your deepest desires and longings? Are you completely satisfied in him? And how would the nature of our worship change if we began to notice, to confess, to repent, and to turn towards our God, to allow him to satisfy? What would it look like to allow God to create an undivided heart in you? A heart that can only be satisfied in him. Jesus says he is the door. There is only one way in. We try to jump fences, sneak in the other way, get all the water and bypass the well. But if we truly understood this prophetic model of worship, the model Miriam demonstrates to remember who God is, what he's done, why you love him, we'd want it all the water, and the well. Before we close, I just wanted to take a moment for application and give you a few handholds for your week so that you know what to do with some of the things that we're talking about today. I think we have a slide for it. But the first, I want to invite you to write a song to the Lord. You don't have to sing it unless you want to. What a gift. But start by talking about who he is who do you know him to be? Start writing those characteristics down. Then start to write down what he's done for you. And finally, why do you love him? Write these things out and allow your heart to become undivided unto the Lord. Second challenge, a little bit deeper. Take a satisfaction inventory, if you will. Get really honest with yourself in the Lord and answer this question. What does it feel like I can't live without? Even deeper, can I surrender these things in order that I might be brought deeper into the heart of God? And then finally, if you haven't done so yet, I want to invite you to notice the shift that takes place in the room corporately in, in moments of complete exaltation when all of our worship in this room is completely and totally unto the Lord. Again, all those worship songs, they're beautiful, but there's something about being able to call out who God is, and letting our worship be so undivided in nature that we don't even come up in the song. It has nothing to do with us. Holy, holy, holy. Watch his presence fall. He's delighted to inhabit the praises of his people. Miriam's model of worship, it invites us to remember who God is, to understand the power of what he's done, to confess that he is God alone. That's what changes us, not just moves us. Because if we end up more like the Israelites that are convinced that the familiarity of enslavement is far better than an opportunity to trust, to worship the God that will fight for you, then our lives are gonna look the exact same in 10 years, in five years, in one year. But if you wanna experience transformation in the presence of God, then lean, in. Lift up the name of God. Allow your heart and mind and whole self to be transformed in his presence as we lay a hold of his goodness. Would you stand with me as I bless you before we move into our time of response? Let's get into that posture that we're always asking you to get into. Hands open, eyes closed. allowing our body to be in such a posture that communicates with our whole self, that you are open, ready to receive whatever it is that God has for you. And God, I just wanna bless these people, our family, a King Jesus family, this morning. God, you are so worthy of all of our praise and all of our adoration. But God, we confess that we find satisfaction in things that are not you. Maybe a few of those things are coming to mind right now. God, we ask that in your goodness you would make it clear what it means to step deeper into the heart of God this morning, to allow who you are and what you've done draw us deeper, setting us free from the familiarity that might come from drawing back into enslavement, and instead, setting us free into the presence of God that we might be able to lay hold of what you have for us all of the good and beautiful things that you have on offer. All you ask for is everything, all of us. So we surrender to you and we ask God that you would bless, anoint, draw near to these people now, that they might be able to have space and capacity in their heart to take hold of what it is you have for them this morning, however unique and specific to them, God. Thank you, God. We bless your name. You are worthy of all of the praise and adoration.
0: Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at JesusChurch.org.